0: All right, I know we're supposed to be in Romans, I know, but we have to finish Isaiah 9, we have to, Um, because then today I'll introduce the next week's study, which will be in Luke, so I need to bring Isaiah 9 to a conclusion. If I don't finish it today... It, 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 everything kind of falls apart. So, I'm not going to do, uh, I'm not going to go all the way back to chapter 7. I'm not going to go back to chapter 8. Just going to make sure we have a basic understanding of chapter 9. I'm going to work on our outline. And if for some reason you're tuning in now and you didn't hear the last, uh, the last study, go back and listen to part 7. And then you, everything will make hopefully some kind of sense. Maybe. We'll, we'll see. All right, here we go. Everybody ready? Isaiah chapter 9. Let's start with our outline of the chapter. First of all, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, a light revealed, all right? And that light is whom? Okay. Well, okay, it, it should, it, we, nobody should say it should be. It has to be because Matthew 4 says it is, okay? All right, so it is Jesus. Could it have any reference to something that happened after the Babylonian captivity when they came out of Babylonian captivity? You could possibly try to say, well, there was light that was shown there. There were the prophets who came and spoke to them. You could try to do something with that. The only problem is clearly the New Testament applies it to Jesus. So that's the, put it this way. What do we know? It refers to Jesus. What do we not know? Any possible historical fulfillment of some way shape or form does that make sense now i know some would argue but wait a minute it uses past tense i but even if it uses past tense that would not work because this is being happening in the 700s and the babylonian captivity doesn't happen till the 500s so even this would have this would still have to be future yes so it's speaking past tense because it's speaking as it's a done deal this is what's going to happen does that make sense okay all right so That light ultimately is Jesus in Matthew 4. Hopefully nobody is confused by any of that, all right? So, the light revealed, Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. Verse 3, there's a promise of great joy. I know the King James says, no, not going to increase the joy, but the text uh, seems to clearly imply that, and we believe it's a textual variant in the King James, okay? All right, that's verse 3. Then verse 4 through 7, I believe, The reasons for the joy and what are the reasons for the joy? Number one, broken yoke of oppression. Number two, war is ended or peace. Number three, a child is born. Number four, a government is established. That's all found in chapter nine, verses four through seven. And then that brings us to verse eight and following. And this is judgment is coming. All right. Everybody got that? Okay, we worked on verse 1 and 2. I think we, we, everything makes sense. I don't think we need to go back through any of that, okay? So, everybody ready? Now we're going to start in verse 8. Okay, now I will be the first to acknowledge <laughs> that it feels a little bit like whiplash when you get to verse 8. You're like, wait, what, what just happened? I don't understand. It seems confusing. It seems like, did someone just... Like they found part of a manuscript and they found another manuscript and they just taped them together. It seems really confusing to most everyone. So I'll, I'll just work your, I'll walk you to it and hopefully you'll see what I'm referring to here. Okay, so... We have this promise of the light. We have, we've talked about the outline. And then verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice, for henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It almost feels like that should be the end, right? Yes, the child's coming. He's going to set up a government. There's going to be no end. The end. But that's not the end, is it? Because immediately we read what in verse 9 or verse 8? The Lord sent a word unto Jacob and it hath lighted upon Israel. And you're like, wait, what just, wait, what's going on? Wait, what just happened? Wait wait so so it's it's almost a a separate it's clearly a separate prophecy, but you have to figure out what is going on because now he's back to referring to whom to Israel now that remember there's been a lots of discussion about Ahaz and Judah this is going back to the northern kingdom, yes so this Listen, this seems to almost be going back in time to chapter 7, right? Because in chapter 7, what is the threat to Judah? Syria and Israel, right? That's the threat, remember? And remember, what was the promise? That it's not going to happen that those kings are going to be taken, are going to be gone. Remember, before the children reach a certain age, they're going to be taken care of, yes? Yes? So now it's going back. Well, wait a minute. Why are we going back to Israel here? What is, what, what is happening? What just occurred? That's what we're going to have to figure out. And then we're going to have to try to see what, how to make sense of that. Does everybody understand the, the confusion here, right? Well, wait a minute. I thought we've already been told Israel is going to be taken care of. Now, is this going to be how they're going to be taken care of? Well, in a sense, this is going back and placing it almost in the Isaiah 7 context. Yes? Like, you almost need a, for Isaiah, for Isaiah, not only do you need a chart, you need about 15 people to interpret the chart for you because it can get very confusing keeping everything straight, right? So are we all on the same page? Are we good to go? Are you sure? If I give you a test right now, can everybody pass it? Right? I hope so. All right? Here we go. I'm not hearing a lot of Amen, so I don't know if people... Here we go. Isaiah 9-8. I'm going to read it this way. The Lord sends a word or message against Jacob, and it falls on Israel, the ten northern tribes, the kingdom of Ephraim. To try to give you some idea of what's going on here. The Lord's going to send a word, a message against Jacob, but it's going to fall on Israel, the ten tribes, the, the kingdom of Ephraim. Right? Now let me read from a couple of commentaries to explain what's going on here. Right, The Lord sent a word unto Jacob, for hath lighted, or, or read it, lighteth, a, a, a new section really begins here, still closely connected with the historical occasion of Isaiah 7. So this is a new section that is closely connected with Isaiah 7. Everybody understand that? And why is it connected with Isaiah 7? That was about Israel Israel threatening Judah. All right, everybody everybody understand that, yes? Okay. The vision of the glory of the far-off king comes to an end, and the prophet returns to the more immediate surroundings of his time. Does everybody understand that? We had, in chapter 7 and 8, we're right there in kind of the middle of what's going on. Yes? We get to chapter 9, all of a sudden, we jump in a sense to the future that a light is coming to this area. Well, that's not going to happen for how many years? 700 plus. Yes? Okay. Then, all of a sudden, the brakes are put on. Turn around. Let's go back to the historical situation. <clears throat> and a word's now going to come ultimately to Israel. Is that, is that a good way of describing it? Throw on the brakes, put the car in reverse, or just turn, do a complete U-turn and go back the other direction. Now, this is the stuff that drives people crazy when they're reading Isaiah. They're like, I don't understand who, what, where, when, how. Forget it. I just give up. Right. And so then people just look, well, where's that? Where's that verse about Jesus? Oh, there's that verse about Jesus. Oh, I love Isaiah. You love Isaiah, not because of the book of Isaiah, because of a couple of verses about Jesus. But the book itself can be very confusing at times. And that is what is going on here. All right. The word which Jehovah sends is the prophetic message that follows. It is a question, everybody got thinking caps on? It is a question whether the terms Jacob and Israel stand in the parallelism of identity or contrast. But the use of the ter- former term in Isaiah two, uh, 2 makes the former use more probable. In this case, both names stand practically for the kingdom of Judah as the true representative of Israel. The apostate kingdom of the ten tribes being no longer worthy of the name and therefore described here as in Isaiah 7 and some other uh, simply as Ephraim. The occasion of the prophecy is given in Isaiah 9.9. Pekah, the king of Ephraim, was still confident in his strength and in spite of his partial failure and the defeat of his ally derided the prophet's prediction. All right, now, we can get into trying to figure out, so when it says unto J- Jacob and have lied it unto Israel, do we understand this as referring to the northern kingdom? Or do we refer to this as, well, now this can refer to Judah because, well, Israel no longer deserves the name, right? So it now, the only problem is that, that does that prophecy going to make sense being going to Judah? Does it make more sense going to the northern kingdom. Okay, that, that's where we'll get in. We'll see. There's going to be a, a, a lot of disagreement on this. Just remember um, verse 9. Just see this. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart. I think this one is where it really becomes clear. Because when you're referring to Ephraim, who are you definitely referring to? The northern kingdom. No question about it. Yes? All right? So that commentary goes in a lot of different directions with all of the different disputes. I think, it, I think they're making it more complicated than it is. This clearly is going back to Israel. All right? I think that's what this is referencing. That seems to make the most sense to me. All right? I'll read another commentary that puts it this way. All right? the, the prophet returns to threats and warnings addressed chiefly to the kingdom of Israel. The remainder of this chapter, together with the first four verses of the next, seems to have formed originally a distinct and separate prophecy. Did you hear that? So this is going to start here and go into chapter 10. All right? You'll, we'll, we'll, we'll take that apart in, in, in minutes. This is a distinct prophecy, All right. The passage is basically a poem and four stanzas, all right? With the same refrain at the end of chapter. Each. All right. Now I'll I'll show you where this takes place. Look at verse uh, chapter nine, verse twelve. Everybody in verse twelve, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, in his anger, is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Right, you see that phrase? That is the refrain that's going to be repeated. So, in other words, what you're going to get is you're going to get a section about judgment, and they're going, and each stanza is going to end with this refrain. Okay. Well, let's fi- let's find the refrain and all of the verses. Okay. So, where was the first place it shows up? Verse twelve. Second place it shows up. Verse seventeen. Therefore, the Lord shall have no joy in their young men; neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For every one is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaketh folly. For all that is for all all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Everybody see that. Then in verse twenty-one, Manasseh and Ephraim, Ephraim, and Manasseh. And they together shall be against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And then look at chapter 10, verse 4. Without me, they shall bow down uh, under the prisoners and they shall fall under the slain. For all all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Everybody see that? Okay, so... That, all you have to do then is just identify basically the stanza. It ends with that refrain, and then you have to just figure out what's being said in each stanza. But clearly, what is the, what is the refrain telling you about each stanza? God is still angry, right? And his, outstre- his outstretched hand here, what do you think that means? An outstretched hand of judgment. Not an outstretched hand of mercy, but an outstretched hand of judgment. His his anger has not been satisfied. So this is like, it gets really, you see why no one talks about this part in Christmas time, right? Okay, this is ugly. This gets really ugly. So we we have a, a brief glimpse of light and then immediately it turns back to, boom, judgment is coming. And God is angry. And he's angry at specific people, specific nation, specific reasons. And that's what we're going to look, look at. Does that make some kind of sense? Right? Does that give you a way of breaking it down? So really, if you go back to our outline, right? I've got to go all the way back up here to our outline. We have the light revealed. We have the joy experience. We have the reasons for the joy. We have judgment is coming. And then you could break that section down. By each stanza, where the stanza begins and where it ends with the refrain. So it, that could be subpoints to judgment is coming. Does that make sense? Right. Yes? Okay. I, I, I hope that makes some kind of sense. Because if, if you can break it down that way, at least you have some idea of what is going on. All right. Now, so let me read this again, okay? Um. Okay, well they, they, they get into, there's all kinds of discussions about why they use the term Jacob. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh I'm not gonna get into all of this. Just know this. Uh when you have when you have when clearly when you have the terms Ephraim and Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, right? Yes? Okay, so there's no question here, right? Now, it's almost like Because some people want to say the term Jacob there could refer to Judah, but if God is upset with Judah, it's going to ultimately fall on whom? Israel, right? Because Judah is going to be protected in what sense? A remnant will return, and ultimately that's the line from which Christ will come. Does that make sense? Okay, so if that, if that kind of, I think that's the best way to look at it. It's just you can get into these commentaries and they go so well. Jacob, and it could be used this way, and oh, it, it can. It, you'll just lose your mind trying to figure it all out. I just seem. In fact, how does the uh, how does the NIV translate nine? Is it nine eight? A word unto Jacob, a message, a message against, Jacob. against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. It will fall on Israel. Okay, so whatever we want to do with Jacob, clearly the judgment's going to fall on whom? The northern kingdom. Yes. Okay. I think I think that that here's what you have to do with Isaiah. I cannot stress this enough. Whenever you read any chapter in Isaiah, you have to grab a piece of paper and you have to draw a line right down the middle. On one side, you have to write down what do I know. And then you write down everything you don't know. Because if you don't have the things clearly that you know listed, you'll get lost. Right? You get into Isaiah, you'll find yourself so, so far lost and so far confused, you'll have to call someone who say, and you'll be like, uh, can you come get me? Where am I? I'm in Isaiah. How long have I been there? About 27 years and I can't find my way out. Right? You've got to have those things you do know. Because if you focus on what you do know, then, then you won't get so... Bothered by all the things you don't know. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try to figure out the things you don't know, but you just got to acknowledge what you don't know and and what you do know. Does that that help at all? All right. So this is the way I wrote it down in my notes. Verse 9 begins a section outlining judgments. This is the way I, I seem to read it. We're given basically the reason for the judgment we're given the judgment and then we are given the repeated phrase, for, uh, for all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So what are we, we going to be given in each one of these uh, stanzas? The reason, the judgment, and then the, re- the, the refrain. Okay? Now, what makes the refrain so ominous? Even after we read one judgment, God is still not is still angry, right? It's like the only way to describe it is if you have two if you have siblings in the house, right? And one of the siblings is in trouble with the parents, and they walk out, and you're like, "What happened? Oh, I got punished." But let me make it clear: they're still upset. They're now coming for you, okay? And you're like, "Okay, wait, I just got in trouble." And then the next sibling's like, "What's going on?" Well. The oldest sister got in trouble. Now I got in trouble, but now they're coming to you. And finally, at some point, you're like, look, I'm leaving the house because it seems like the parents' anger is never going to subside. Okay, well, that's in a sense in this this situation, God's anger continues. So it makes it a very ominous thing. Like, oh, wow, God did that and he still wasn't satisfied. He's very upset with people here. Does Does that make sense? And, and, and in a sense, he's upset with all, all of them. He's upset because both Israel and Judah, what, are, what has been their issues? Well, they wanted their way, their will, and their word. Man, I cannot stress that enough. So God's anger here shows up. Now, so all we have to do now is just go through kind of each section and find out what takes place, correct? Seems, seems to make sense. All right, so where does the first... Judgment show up. Obviously in verse 9, yes? And it's going to go down to verse 12 because that's the, that's the refrain. All right, so the first judgment. Now, see, it makes perfect sense now, yes? Okay, all right, here we go. What's the judgment? Verse 9. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, that say in the, the pride and stoutness of heart, the bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Stop right here. All right, what is going on in these verses? Like, even if you don't have a commentary, just from the surface, what appears to be going on? Because we, you know, the refrain that God, this, there's going to be judgment here, right? So, so what what seems to be their attitude? The attitude is, okay, you, it's almost like this. Oh, you brought destruction upon us? You brought destruction on us? Watch what we're going to do. We're going to rebuild it. We're going to fix it. This is a prideful spirit that is not accepting what? The chastisement from God. They're not accepting the chastisement from God. It would almost be like you, your child is doing something, they they keep doing something on the phone you don't want them to do, and you're like, okay, fine, I'm going to take your phone. You smash the phone, and the kid looks at you like, that's the best you got? I'll put it back together. I'll make it better than it was before. Well, that's not really accepting the punishment, is it? That's being pretty rebellious, Right? Okay, and I'm not saying you should smash their phone. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just using it as an illustrative, for illustration purposes. I'm not telling you how to parent. Okay, okay. But in this particular case, God has brought destruction and their attitude is what? That's it? Really? That's it? Now, a some commentaries will give us a little bit of, of in, in, kind of an insight here. All right. Because I think I think uh, that that's a little bit helpful here, right? Um, in the and so okay, they talk about some some things here. Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, had violated both relationships, basically the relationships with uh, Judah and with uh, you know the other other people of of, of Israel, uh, when he entered into a military alliance with the pagan king Rezin of Syria in order to conquer Judah and take Jerusalem. His actions pitted Jewish brother against brother, and blurred god 's vision for a united kingdom of righteousness and justice that would be a light for the world all right so he, his his whole attitude here has been problematic. The first judgment then is against their pride and arrogance of heart. The bricks are fallen down we have suffered a moderate damage, but we will more than make up for all of it. All of our losses will be replaced with something better. Bricks were the ordinary material for the poorer classes of houses in Palestine. Stone was reserved for the dwellings of the rich and the great. Sycamore wood was the the most common sort of timber. Cedar, basically, that was most most precious and was actually imported from Phoenicia. So the idea is this was destroyed. Look what we're going to get. Something better. Okay. Yeah, whatever, whatever is destroyed, we're gonna we're gonna bring back something better, all right? The Israelites, the the Israel the Israelites probably alluded to damage done by Tilgath-Pileser in his first invasion. The Assyrians were in the habit of actually cutting down trees in foreign countries in order to injure and weaken them. But the present passage is perhaps rather intended to be figurative. Well, whether it's figurative or not figurative, they have suffered some stuff from the initial issues with the Assyrians. They've withstood the initial issue and now what, they're, what are they like? I mean, to borrow a popular phrase in our culture today, we will build back better, right? That's. Political, okay, some of you know what I'm talking about. Okay, all right, so they're like, we're going to build back better, and they think they're going to, to, to fix it and make it all better. What do, what do they not understand? Okay, the Assyrians are going to ultimately take them out, right? So instead of repenting, they respond with arrogance, with pride, with arrogance, with pride. Does does everyone understand that? Okay? And then... Oh, oh, man, there's so much I want to do here. Okay. Um, And then, uh, what is the... uh, So that's verse uh, 10. Look at verse 11. Therefore the Lord... Now, please note, what do you have in verse 11? Therefore. See the the, in verse 11? Right? That therefore is... Okay, based off your rebellion and pride... What is God going to do? He will set up adversaries of resin against him and join the enemies together. The Syrians before, the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth. For all of this, the anger is not turned away, but the hand is stretched still. All right? Now, this is the idea, basically, what is he going to do? We could go through and... He's going to strengthen all of these enemies to come together to go after them. I, that's a, I'm just going to simplify I could go through all the history, but you get the idea. He's going to bring all the enemies together. All right? Um, and and they're basically, they're just going to be trapped between a, a group of enemies. Uh, uh, all of these enemies are going to ultimately work together to come against them. All right? So, what is the first judgment against? Pride but I want to make sure we understand this. Okay, we, we want to get very practical here. This is pride in face of what? This is a, a, a pride directed specifically at something. God had brought what upon them? Judgment. He had brought what? Chastisement. This is pride in the face of rebellion Judgment and chastisement. This specifically now is practical for all of us. Because sometimes we don't do well when we are punished, rebuked, chastised, or confronted. Instead of responding in a biblical way, we sometimes have a tendency to respond in what way? A rebellious or arrogant way. Okay, I'll, I'll just give you, I, I, I know it may come as a shock, but I am somewhat prone to this kind of attitude. I know it's a shock because I, I tend not to, you know, stand up against anything. and I just submit to everybody's wishes and do what everybody tells me to do. But, and, and now, I, I think I was in the right. You can tell me if I was in the wrong. I guess I was in the wrong in the sense from a Christian perspective, but I feel I was right in every other perspective. Okay, so in the old, in the old gym, Jim Ned, they had a rope that I guess was supposed only for people who were a part of the athletic program that they could climb to, for strengthening, right? It's lunchtime. I see a rope. I'm going to climb climb said rope, right? And I'm, I'm told by the football players, but you can't. Well, you can't tell me what to do because you don't tell me what to do, right? Okay. Who are you? Well, I'm bigger than you. I don't care if you beat me up. I'm going to climb the rope, right? So I decide to climb the rope. Seems like a perfect thing to do, right? And the rope breaks. The whole thing comes crashing down and I hit the gym floor. Well, now the football players are all mad. Next thing you know, I'm called to the principal's office to be punished for daring to climb a rope that's only for football players. So I get punished, right, for climbing the rope. Okay? And I'm like, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life, right? So they fix said rope. I got punished, paddled. I got paddled for climbing a rope. I didn't even, there's not even a sign saying don't touch. I'm like, what in the world is this? Utterly ridiculous rule, right? So when they put, when they fixed the rope, guess what I did? Kept climbing it every time I wanted to because nobody was going to tell me that I could not. I don't care if I got paddled 50 times. You don't tell me what to do. Now, I think I was in the right because it's that utterly and absolutely ridiculous rule. It was a ridiculous rule, right? Because nobody else had ever gotten in trouble for doing it, but there was some target on my back. But I'm like, who cares? But in a sense, though, I didn't accept the punishment. I didn't accept the correction. I didn't accept the rebuke. I said, I'm not listening to it. Now, on one hand, I'm like, fight the power. I did the right thing. From a biblical perspective... This is where it becomes very personal because now there are times in all of our lives where we have to be corrected, we have to be rebuked, and let's all be honest, we all respond similar ways. You've probably responded to some of my sermons the same way I did to that rope. Okay? I'm like, what is the problem? Oh, he thinks there's a problem. I'm going to show him a problem. Okay, right? I'm not going to do a thing, he says. Now, you may not say it outwardly, but inwardly, you probably do that. Okay, well, my wife's saying she does that. Okay, well, that's wonderful. Okay, okay. So, okay, or she's saying all of you people are garbage and that you're doing it. Okay, I don't know what she's saying, but either way, it's not a good thing. Right? But you get the idea. We've all been there. We open the scriptures. Are we not rebuked and slapped across the face a hundred times? Sometimes we don't respond well. Sometimes when God brings chastisement upon us, instead of being re- broken and humbled and repent, and repent, we become arrogant, bitter, frustrated and rebellious. That's what's happening here. It's pride. It's pride. How do you handle a rebuke? That says everything about your spirituality right there. How do you handle a rebuke and how do you handle correction? How do you handle rebuke and how do you handle correction? It could, get, it could get very personal, right? Let's say that I'm aware that d- you're involved in some open sin, right? We haven't had a chance to talk about it, okay? Let's say on Friday, we have the Lord's Supper, right? and I, I, We practice closed communion here, right? We don't practice close. We don't practice open. We practice closed, right? So you have to be a church member. And because we believe that when the Bible talks in First Corinthians of people dying of partaking of the Lord's Supper in an incorrect way, I believe that's real, Right. If I believe it's real, then I've got a responsibility to make sure you don't what? Die. Well, let's say I'm here. We get ready. And, and, you know, it's getting time. Everything's set up for the Lord's Supper. And I'm like, hey, Emma, we need to talk for a second. And I pull Emma to the back and I'm like, hey, you can't partake of the Lord's Supper tonight. I, I know about whatever the problem is. I know I, I'm not here to make it any worse, but I, do, I just cannot let you have the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm doing that not only in a, a rebuking way, but I'm doing it in a way, obviously, to protect her from dying, okay? Now, for those listening online, I'm not saying Emma can't partake of the Lord's Supper on Friday, but I mean, it is still early in the week, so we don't know, okay? But, okay, but uh, the, the point is, is she could walk away a couple of different ways, right? She could walk away going, how dare him? Who does he think he is? I'm never going back to that church in a million years. That is ridiculous. Or she could be like, I need to probably fix that sin problem, not just because of communion, but because it's a sin. We don't do well with correction. Does anybody do well with correction? Oh, okay. okay. I think most of the time we don't. We don't like it. We don't like it. We want our way, our will, and our work. You see a theme developing here? Okay. All right. What's the next one? We got to go quickly. 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 All right. all right. Now, please note, I could go through the history here of the Assyrians and all the people, and I could go through everything, but I, I mean, you, you, we get the basic idea. Is that, is that okay? All right. If you, if you want more details, I can, I can send them to you. Okay, all right. All right what's the second? Where's the second judge, judgment begin? Verse 13. And please note, even after all of that, even, I mean, that's some pretty serious words in 12, is it not? The Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall what? Devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. It is frightening that after all of that, his, his anger is still not going to be satisfied. Okay. Then verse, four, uh, verse, for, verse 13. For the people turneth not unto him that smiteth them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off from Israel, head and tail, branch and rush in one day. The ancient and honorable, he is the head, and the prophet that teacheth lies, he is the tell. For the leaders, uh, and well, we'll stop right, uh, no, verse 16. For the leaders of his people cause them to err, that they are led of them are destroyed. Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite, an evildoer, and every mouth speaketh folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. All right. He is upset here with them again. What is basically the second uh, judgment against? First one was pride. What's this one? They won't, they won't turn to him. After he, they've been smitten. They won't turn to him after they've been chastised. They won't turn to him. They won't repent. It's a refusal to repent. Now, what do you think it means by uh, God will cut off the head? Yeah, uh, he's going to get rid of the current leaders who misled them. And what do you think the tell is? Okay. Okay. And, and verse uh, verse verse fifteen. What is it, How does it identify the? Uh, the that's the prophet. The false prophets? Right, okay. Now, some some also refer to the people also involved, uh, or the tell also involves the people who followed the leaders into destruction, okay? It also could refer to uh, uh, possibly the prophet. Isaiah speaks a truth that cannot be ignored. While God holds elders, judges, and prophets responsible for misleading people, those who follow them cannot claim ignorance or innocence. Alright? So it goes to the leaders, spiritual and civil. It goes to the people. It goes to the false prophets. The bottom line is you can't claim innocence or ignorance. Now that right there is a very practical thing because I do get uh, so many times you hear Christians saying, Well, you know, they were never taught. They were never taught. Look, man, that excuse needs to have should have left the Put it to say, once the internet came into existence, all Christians' excuses go out the window. I don't care you go to a bad church. First of all, it's your fault for going. Second, you own a Bible with every reference tool in the history of mankind available on your phone, with every writings of the church fathers available on your phone, with access to millions of sermons on your phone. You have have the entire knowledge of church history on your phone. If you don't know something, it's because you don't want to know, you don't care to know, so stop blaming someone else for not knowing. At some point, that gets just old. At this point, the people may have had some kind of excuse, but God doesn't even let them get away with an excuse here. Everyone's going to, the head, the tail, both are going to be judged. Does that make sense? I mean, that, it, it just, it gets, I, I, Christians love to make every excuse in the world. Well, I can't read because it gives, I can't study because it's always some excuse. It's like wah, 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 wah. I'm like, stop it. Okay, it, we, we, you have access to the information. Correct? Okay. So we, we gotta, I know people get offended when I say that, but it's just at some point, it's like the, the information is everywhere. Now, I do agree. The church should be doing the teaching, but you can catch on really quick when the church isn't doing the teaching, okay? Like I gave the example in Sunday school of listening, doing the review for that sermon uh, yesterday on Isaiah 9 from that big church. It, it doesn't take much to figure out when Ahaz died. You can do a Google search. Right, doesn't take much to figure out that Ahaz was the king of Judah, not the king of Israel. Right? That, that doesn't even require seminary. That doesn't even require a Bible college. That requires, I don't know, a Google search. So if you're sitting in a church and the pastor's getting those basic concepts wrong, whose fault? You, for sitting there. Or two, for not having some encouraging kind of conversation with the pastor to let him know that maybe you would like him to do a little bit more study. Correct? So, these people are in trouble because, well, nobody is listening and nobody is seeking uh, to the Lord. Uh, This commentary goes on to say it this way. Oh, man, there's so much here. The the same truth is stated in the familiar uh, quotation. People get the government they deserve. Evidently, there is a certain codependency between corrupt leaders and corrupted people. One cannot exist without the other. Perhaps this will help explain the continuing popularity of television evangelists who are exposed as frauds or shamed by scandal. They cannot continue without the support of people whose needs are met by their exuberant claims or charismatic presence of leaders whom they follow like basically a blind herd. They just follow them. Therefore, they're also guilty of arrogance and and ambition and callous impenitence, which leads Isaiah to make sweeping generalization. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. All right? I mean, he's coming against them, right? I mean, he's not happy with them, yes? He has no joy. what, What does it mean that he has no joy in their young men, neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows? He's done with everybody. The head and the tail. Yes, the tail I think refers to the false prophets, but it also refer, I think it refers to the people definitely as well. The head the tail, the leaders and the people. God is upset with them all and so he refers to them and look, it's pretty he's not going to have he's not going to have mercy on whom? Fatherless and widows. Why would he why would he go there? He goes because he's this is because we have a tendency if we see someone in a bad situation, we're like, Well, I feel bad for them. He's like, God's like, I don't care your circumstance, I don't care how bad the situation is, I'm not going to have any mercy. That's serious. That's that's frightening words. Would you not agree? Those are frightening words, all right. Um. And his anger is not turned away and his hand, is not, his hand is stretched out still. Okay, That brings us to verse 18. What's the third judgment? For wickedness burneth as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns and shall kindle in the thickets of the forest and they shall mount up like the lifting up of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened and the people shall be as the fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother and he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry, and he shall eat on the left hand, and they shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. All right? Here's here's what's basically what's... If I read this from a number of translations, you could probably get the idea. I don't have time to look them all up. Basically, here's the idea. God is judging them because they have turned against their own brother. They've turned against their own kind. Israel has turned against whom? Judah. Judah. They're fighting one another. They're fighting one another. In fact, if I, if I can bring up a num- number of translations, because I, I just want to make sure everybody sees what is going on here. Okay. Uh, what verse is that? Uh, verse 18, okay, all right, hang on, let me, let me get here, I've got to uh, move all the way up. I'll just read this from a number of translations so that you can, get, you can get an idea. All right, it's verse 18, yes, so, Surely wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it sets the forest thickets ablaze so that it rolls upward in a column of smoke. The wickedness is like a brush fire. It burns not only briars and thorns, but it also sets the force ablaze. It's burning, sends up clouds of smoke. In other words, this wickedness is what? It's spreading and it's burning everything up in its presence. Does that make sense? Verse 19, by the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched and the people will be fuel for the fire. They will not spare one another. New Living Translation, The land will be blackened by the fury of the Lord of of heaven's armies. The people will be fuel for the fire. No one will spare even his own brother. The fact is, they are fighting against each other. And because they're fighting against each other, God's going to bring judgment that's only going to intensify what? It's going to turn them even more against each other. Remember, sin leads to more sin. That, that is where this, how bad the situation has, has gotten. And then what, what does he say is going to occur? On the right, they will devour, but still be hungry. On the left, they will eat, but not be satisfied. Each will feed on the flesh of their own offspring. Offspring. They're going to eat their own children. It's going to get so bad they're going to basically revert to cannibalism. That's how bad the situation is going to get. That's pretty pretty sick and dark, yes. A couple of translations, so that you will see this. Okay, they will attack their neighbor on the right, but will still be hungry. They will devour their neighbor on the left, but will not be satisfied. In the end, they will eat even their own children. All right. Now you could say, well, that's figurative. It just means they're going to destroy one another. You could you could make an argument. You could try to make an argument there if you, if you want. All right. Um. Let's see here. That's the third judgment. Okay. Um, I'll just read from a couple of, uh, here's one commentary. God's wrath will be vented against them when the same spirit of betrayal is turned inward and against each other. It's one thing to see the resource of the land burned up in judgment. It's quite another thing to see the relationships of blood relatives become the fuel for the fire. When the bands of heredity and love that hold those relationships together are destroyed, civilization breaks down. Civil war leads to anarchy, and anarchy bottoms out in cannibalism. Brother against brother, tribe against tribe, nation against nation, the betrayal that began with an alliance with Syria has extracted the ultimate cost of, uh, basically, of cannibalism. Israel will fall lower than the animals themselves. And, and, and at a wonderful Christmas uh, prophecy? That's bad, isn't it? Pride? Listen, pride? Okay, let's go through the th- things we're Pride, what's the second thing they're being judged for? They, they won't repent even after being chastised. And third? They're going to they're turn against one another. Here's the thing. When we resist God and our pride and we will not even respond to his chastisement, we will descend deeper and deeper into sin and into darkness so that even the most horrible thing can become imagined and real. All right? And then that leads us to chapter 10. Yes? Which is the fourth judgment which you'll have to do on your own. Okay? All right? Any, any questions? All right? Everybody see chapter 10? You can, you can look at it for yourself. There's the judgment. Everybody understand those things? So, here's the thing. God offers the light. God offered them salvation. God, God offered them the, 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 the calming rivers of, of Shaloa. They didn't want any of that. Everyone wanted their own way. Their own will and their own word. And once they get their own way and their own will and their own word, what does it end in? When you get your own way and your own will and your own word, what does it end with? Destruction. Death. For the wages of sin is death. Every Christmas, think about it, every Christmas is God's offer of salvation. But the world doesn't want that salvation. They want their way. They want their will and their word. They may try to ma- manipulate and use Christmas so that they can get their good little warm feelings, but they, don't, they reject God. They reject the baby. They reject the, the, the Christ. They reject the eternal son of God who was incarnated. They reject it. They run around getting their way, their will, their word, but guess what? It's going to end in total uh, ultimate destruction. And when you see how bad that sounds? Says a lot like, you know, I don't know, the book of Revelation, doesn't it? Because the people are going to continue to reject the way, the will, the word until Christ comes back with a sword, and then it's going to be death and destruction. All right, we'll have to stop right there. Look, God, we come before you this afternoon, Lord. Very, very difficult passage of scripture, so much to work through. I could have simplified it a little bit more, but I pray that by working through this, we understand it first and then we have enough to apply to our own lives to be challenged by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,